0: we've completed the trifecta of modern media for japan recently we did evangelion as anime there you go elden ring as video game oh and now we're doing japanese cinema yeah but this is cool you know you you mentioned to me when you were watching this film last night that you love japanese culture yeah and or at least like you know as much as a Westerner Good. who is not a weeaboo can appreciate yeah. what that culture has to offer.
1: Can you define a weeaboo, please?
0: Yeah, I don't know if we've talked about that before in past casts.
1: I'm going to say a weeaboo, probably
0: not. <laughs> my understanding of a weeaboo is a Westerner who is obsessed, like kind of like to the detriment of their hygiene or social skills with you know anime and Japanese cultures. So we just like to sample it. You know, like you're walking through Costco and you're picking up some hummus or something while you walk <laughs> through the aisles. And it's good, you know, it's like, uh, even though we would love to just kind of binge anime probably if we had the time.
1: Yes. I'm trying
0: to get you to watch Pass, but yep. but yeah, it is. Uh, it is special and it's very different. You know, every culture is distinct when you really look into it, but Japanese culture and a lot of Eastern culture is very different than Western culture. <laughs>
1: And is particularly interpersonal dynamics. Yeah, for some reason, I feel like Japanese is the easiest to drink. It goes down very smoothly. You ever had an Asahi? It's very smooth. <laughs> People might be wondering why we're talking about Japanese culture, especially because this is the final film that we're covering in the Best Picture nominations for the 2022 Oscars. Yeah. And we just watched it, both of us, because we hadn't watched This was the last one we needed to watch. I was saving it
0: because I knew
1: I I would love it. What are we doing today?
0: We're doing Drive My Car. Baby, you can. Drive My Car. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The sequel to Dude Where's My Car.
1: (laughs) I was shocked that they didn't use some sort of Beatles cover of that song in this uh, film. But yeah, we're doing Drive My Car today. We just spent the last, I don't know, 24 to 48 hours yeah, soaking in that headspace and just meditating on what we watched.
0: It's a three-hour film. Yeah. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> well, Driving My Car is nominated in four categories for the 94th Academy Awards, Stephen. What are they? We have Best Picture. Yes. Of course. That's why we're here. Yes. Best International Feature Film. Uh-huh. Best Adapted Screenplay. That's where it differs from Parasite. I think Parasite was original screenplay. Okay. And then four is Best Director. So. Oh, it is? Yeah. Wow, I didn't know that. It's a big deal for...
1: Ryusuke Hamaguchi. There you go. Thanks, Steven. And he... He was—he directed this... I couldn't have been more impressed with direction, to be honest. To me, it was as proficiently directed as Dune was.
0: He's a relatively young director. He's only 43 years old. He has a, you know plenty of other work under his belt, none of I, which...
1: I actually almost texted you that last night, and I was like, this guy's only nine years older than I am.
0: Yeah, and he is... Well accomplished. I, I don't recognize, I'm looking through his stuff right now and, you yeah, know, full disclosure. I haven't,
1: I haven't seen anything.
0: We don't really know Japanese cinema as well as we'd like. For me, not nearly as, you know, familiar to me as like a Korean cinema would be. So, mm-hmm. or even like Chinese or Hong Kong. Japan's kind of been not slower to the game than those other Asian countries in terms of cinema, but it's like not usually the first country I think of when I think of, you know, live action.
1: <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about who who shot this cinematography. It was shot by Hidetoshi Shinomiya. I thought it was beautiful.
0: Yeah, I I was in love with the cinematography from the very first shot where it's, it's that very low light, soft contrast shot of Odo sitting up in the bed. And I was like, we're in for a treat. Mm-hmm. We're in for three hours of just art, so.
1: Yeah, from the get go, I did text you and say, this just has this polish to it that just looks so pristine. Yeah. Every shot in this film was beautiful. The one I was constantly impressed by the framing and the positioning of the actors within the frame. There's a shot of them down by the water on the stairs. One of them is at the top of the stairs, one of them is down, and they're both standing. Yeah. And it's at a diagonal angle. And there's that line, the water line from where the railing is, that goes straight diagonally through the shot. And I was like, this is just. And every shot was like that. It was very competent and comprehensive.
0: And, and artful. There's that old YouTube essay channel called Every Frame a Painting. Yeah. And I always think of that when I'm watching really good movies. Yes. And I'm like, I could pause this at almost any point. Sure. And just take a still image and frame it. <laughs> That's exactly how
1: it should be. It shouldn't be what it is on Netflix, which is often lost. Garbaggio. Not always. Like, you know, Power of the Dog is a good example, but it's often... You know, especially for the, the crap that they just crank out, that art form is just lost. Yeah. Well, it's
0: difficult to do and it doesn't always sell well. So you can't. Is, is it difficult to do? Get, don't hate the player, hate the game and the player. So <laughs> the editing for this film was done by Azusa Yamazaki.
1: I loved the editing in this film. Uh, that married with the sound was fantastic. There are often times that you, there's some sort of ambient noise just going and going, and the editing would just hang there for what would feel like uncomfortably long, and then it would just come to a crescendo and then cut. It happened many times throughout the course of this film, and I loved the marrying of the editing with the sound.
0: Yeah, there were a lot of room tones, like you said, ambient sounds, and something I never thought about, which is car tones, Yes, because we spend a lot of this film inside the interior of a car.
1: (laughs) Yeah, a very specific car.
0: And also, to jump from there to the music which was done by Aiko Ishibashi. Wonderful minimalist score. Yeah. Really adds to that atmosphere, like yeah, you said. Yeah, totally. Love to shout out the production design. Mm-hmm. Hyeon-san-seo. That can't be it, but I tried.
1: No, you were really close. Okay. hyeon seon Yeah. Hyeon-seon-seo, I think, yeah. And art direction by Kensaki Joe. Art direction was great. I really did like the... Lo- I mean, honestly... If there was a location scout for this movie, yes, I feel like that person should be shouted out. Apart from Hamaguchi discovering these locations for himself, I feel like location scout or director would yeah. be hugely.
0: Japan itself lends itself so well to this kind of story mm-hmm. because it's it's usually very overcast and right. I used the word somber when I texted you the other night. It's kind of it's a little bit gloomy because this is kind of a, a sad story about grief and acceptance, but also. Specifically, I, I love the use of the city of Hiroshima and the fact that it is set there or like part of it is set there is, I think, very important to the narrative as well. And then we were talking last night about like atomic bombs and stuff and how that has affected the nation and the culture. Hiroshima? Yeah.
1: Yeah, I was wondering how Hiroshima can still exist and not something like Chernobyl.
0: Yeah, I guess it was, I mean, aside from the fact that the radiation was a fraction of what happened in Chernobyl, Mm. because it was just a bomb versus an entire reactor. Uh, It's also interesting because, I mean, this is kind (laughs) of macabre now that we're talking about the atomic bomb, but it detonated hundreds of meters off the ground, which maximized the yield of the blast, but also made it so that the radiation didn't last as long. It's, It's weird, but they started rebuilding Hiroshima just even a few years after the bombs fell. And so now it's this prospering, thriving, bustling city. And So it didn't... Radiation levels now are completely nominal. It's basically the same as any other place on Earth. But it didn't decimate Hiroshima. Oh, it decimated it. It was the, completely obliterated. Oh, really? But the radiation didn't last as long as Chernobyl is essentially the takeaway. So you could begin rebuilding after just a couple of years. Dang. But it was completely obliterated. Yeah, it was completely... It's fucked up. Anyway... Some fun, fun facts for you about the atomic bomb. Tune in later for our review of Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer
1: in two years. I just got really quiet. I'm like, now I'm thinking about death. Yeah,
0: I think it was hundreds of thousands of people. Oh my god! Between that and Nagasaki, which was the second bomb, which was like just a few weeks later or something. America has no chill when it comes to dropping bombs on
1: foreign countries.
0: Anyway, back to the cast.
1: Let's, let's bring it back. Um, I'm crying on the inside right now. Um, I
0: think what might be the nice or the next, the natural next part of this conversation would be the writer. Ryusuke, I think, adapted this with a writing partner, I think, if I'm reading this correctly, Takamasio, or Oe. But they adapted it from a, a short story or actually a, a series of short stories mm-hmm. by a man named Haruki Murakami, who I actually just found out if, like a couple months ago, unrelated, because I was digging, I was on one of my Wikipedia rabbit hole sessions. You know, you ever just get lost on Wikipedia? Yes. And I was digging up surrealist fiction and weird fiction like I'm wont to do. And uh, it led me to this guy because he wrote this influential, not influential, but maybe iconic is the better word. He wrote this iconic piece, a story called Hard-boiled Wonderland and the End of the World, which was uh, a strange and iconic Japanese science fiction or weird fiction, kind of cyberpunk story in the 80s or the 90s. And that's how I know Haruki Murakama, but he's a really interesting guy. I think he started writing in his 30s or 40s after having another job for a while. I don't know, I I spent some time on his wiki page even before having realized that he was the source material for this movie, but... Yeah. Interesting guy. Anyway, his, his short story formed the basis for this film, and a series of short stories he wrote that are, it's called Men Without Women, which I think was inspired by Hemingway. And as you can tell if you've seen this movie, it's an exploration of that relationship. Yeah, the original short story was called Drive My Car from the 2014 collection Men Without Women. But I think Ryusuki also sampled some of his other stories to combine those elements, because they are short stories, into a larger narrative. So, not sure exactly what he picked and choose from, but... Now we have this story as its own creation. There's a brief bit of jumbled history <laughs> for the from the writing, because I think it's interesting. Haruki Murakami
1: is a pretty
0: prolific, so interesting guy.
1: Thank you for that synopsis, Kip. Let's talk about
0: the cast. You have the cast? You want to read all their names?
1: Yeah. <laughs> uh, Hidetoshi Nishijima, he played Yusuke Kafuku, and uh, he was the main character. I loved this guy so much. He had... This perfect his way of being that was so complex. It had so many different layers to it. He was kinda like the tortured artist type, but he also was a very commanding and authoritative person, but also a very broken person at the same time. I just love like and that was all just going on behind his eyes, you know, like he didn't even have to speak to get all that information across, like in his character. I just loved watching him for three hours you know
0: yeah the audience knows he's hurting yeah but he's very composed throughout most of it. the film
1: he was just did such a good job actually went i looked up to see if he was going to be nominated for best actor because i thought he should have been but nope
0: <laughs> it wasn't as like oscar baity his performance i mean it was very yeah, subtle
1: it was very subtle but i thought that there was genius to the subtlety so his wife was played by Rika kirishima and she played Oto Kafuku, And uh, she's sort of the main... Muse. The launch. Yeah, the <laughs> muse or the launch, launching point of the film. And then he kind of teams up with the person that drives his car. And her name is Toko Miura. And in the film, her name is Misaki Watari. And uh, the dynamic between Hidetoshi and Toko is really interesting. There's a lot of fascinating dialogue and dynamic. Again, a lot of unspoken kind of artistic portrayals of, you know, just watching them exist in the car, not speaking, but, but having this kind of like a father-daughter thing I found so engaging. Then there was his wife's lover, young guy named Koji Takatsuki in the film. And then he's played by Masaki Okada in real life. That's his name. I thought he did a great job honestly, portraying that role. He's, I mean, to quote him in the movie, he, I think he said he felt empty or like miserable, like completely miserable, as if he just wasn't even a person anymore. Yeah, I remember the word empty. Yeah. And then Janice Chan in the film was played by Sonia Yuan. Yuan? And then she's married to a guy named Li Yunya. He was this amazing character that Gabe and I, I think both liked a lot. <laughs> He's just kind of like a salt of the earth Uh, But he's also in charge of the play happening. And he's played by Yuvrin Park. And then there were a bunch of other actors and actresses who were cast in a play that our main character, uh, Yusuke Kafuku, was putting on because he was a playwright. And so there's a couple other ancillary characters that I'm not going to name because I'm tired of naming people that I can't pronounce properly. Anyway, that's the cast. They all brought... A lot of subtle subtext performances that were just captivating. They all were so noteworthy without even having to speak a word just to watch them exist. Again, the cinematography married with their acting performances and the framing and everything. I thought was it just made for a very compelling looking film, which comes off as like a high art film because (laughs) a lot of times, I mean, there is a lot of dialogue in this film, but like a lot of times you're just watching characters exist or smoke or whatever, you know? Yeah.
0: That's why I agree with the word compelling, but I'm also hesitant to use that as a recommendation because it is very slow.
1: Well, I was going to say, I was, yeah, first and foremost, we should say this movie, like, although Gabe and I loved it, I think we loved it because it was high art. And, and you really have to be a, a critic of of cinema to enjoy <laughs> this film for... Mm-hmm. All that it has to offer because it isn't for the casual viewer who may be looking for entertainment. This is a very, very slow, methodical, thoughtful kind of existential film. It's a very meditative film. Yes, it's very true. And the premise is essentially this and here are some spoilers. There's a 40 minute prologue (laughs) That you, you're watching the film thinking, is this the movie? But then it the credits start rolling at 40 minutes. And that intros the rest of the film. Mm-hmm. In that 40-minute prologue, you get a lot of information about uh, who your main characters are. Or I should say who your main character is. He's married to a woman that he loves. They have a very weird sexual relationship. But they're they're both artists and they seem to get inspiration from one another. He finds out that she's cheating on him um, with this young kind of hotshot actor. That kind of sends him for a little bit, spiraling a little bit. And then she asks to talk when he gets home later that night from work. And then he comes home and uh, she's dead on the floor for the from the same thing that actually killed um, Jonathan Larson. Just dropped literally in their kitchen same way that Jonathan Larson died and then that begins the film so that's the first 40 minutes which is rather depressing and then from that point he leaves the, the city that he's currently in and drives to Hiroshima and uh, meets some people there who want to put on his play and that kind of begins the film the, the people that want to put on his play are paying for it won't let him drive his own car they kind of force him to take a driver that they are hiring to drive him to and from his hotel because he likes to have a hotel far away from where his rehearsals are being held because he likes to rehearse his lines and kind of psychologically prep himself for the day anyway he's forced to take on that driver and then there's a whole dynamic with the casting and he casts he ends up casting the person that was sleeping with his wife the young hotshot actor in the lead role that he used to play himself and the rest of the movie plays out he finds out a bunch of history about the young woman that's driving him she happens to be the same age as a daughter that he had with his wife who died when she was four and she's now 23 and and his daughter would have been the same age as this young girl that's driving him around and she has had a, a very tortured, traumatic past with her mom, who was abusive and schizophrenic. And, um, and so there's empathy there from him toward her, and then there's empathy from her toward him as they kind of learn about each other and each other's stories. And so there's the dynamic with him going to rehearsal and rehearsing his play, with the person that was sleeping with his wife and there's just the dynamic of him being driven there and learning about the young girl who, again, becomes kind of like a daughter to him in a way. He even says at one point, like, if I was your father, I would tell you this, but because I'm not your father, we kind of just have to sit in the suck, you know? <laughs> he doesn't say it in those words. I'm, I'm glossing over it. And then the film ends with, in an interesting way, actually, because they talk about, often about, putting behind their past and, and, um, kind of embracing their scars, so to speak, because there's an actual physical scar across the face of the young driver, the young girl who's driving the car. And he asks her after the young hotshot actor basically beats up this random guy that took photos of him. And that guy ends up dying and he gets arrested for beating him up and basically leading to the cause of death. And he's locked up. And so the play is at jeopardy And he's now asked to reprise his role, which is very emotional for him because the story is very intertwined with his wife, who he's having trouble reconciling the death of and their relationship because of the fact that she was cheating on him. And then he asks the young girl to drive him to where she was from, where she had a troubled past with her mom, and she drives him there, and then they hug at the place where she grew up grieving Everything that they had experienced up to that point and holding each other in the snow. It's a really beautiful moment. And then it goes back to in the lead role in his play and performing the play. There's a very interesting, there's some interesting lines of dialogue there in the play that parallel the events of the the story that we have watched. And then the final thing you see is a young, young Masaki Watari. She's in a store buying some stuff with a mask on. She goes out to the parking lot, and she gets in the car that she was driving, which was Yusuke Kofuku's car the whole time. But it seems like she is just driving it or owns it now or something. And she gets in there and starts driving and takes her mask off, and her scar is a lot less noticeable, which was something that she mentioned earlier, that that, um, her scar on her face was something that she could have had cosmetic surgery for to lessen the noticeability of it Uh, but she chose not to because she you know wore it because she was still kind of dealing with how she got the scar which was kind of implied that it was by her mom and their childhood home collapsing but anyway it seems like she then went through with getting that surgery or something and and so when she took off her mask you could barely see the scar on her face and that's where the movie ended a lot of healing, but it, but like Gabe said earlier, it was it's kind of a story about grief and loss and dealing with that pain. Yeah,
0: processing it and accepting it, forgiving both yourself and that other
1: person who hurt you. Sorry, that was really long.
0: <laughs> that was good.
1: I was reliving it in my mind. Yeah, <laughs> all three hours. <laughs> but it's uh it's just a beautiful film. The whole time it's interesting. You know, right after the 40 minutes, you're kind of like, wow, where is this going to go? You know, and there's a lot of buildup and then there's a lot of payoff. So I enjoyed uh, every minute of it, both Ali and I did as we watched it.
0: Yeah, I loved it too. There's there's really a lot to talk about in this film. I could spend hours talking about this movie, both in the way the story was told and just like the themes. And I was fascinated by the whole stage play angle of it. Yusuke is a theater He's like a playwright, right? And he, he organizes and puts on stage plays and sometimes performs in them. And it was like a huge like narrative device in this film that was interwoven with the actual story in the movie. The characters and the happenings in that film mirror Yusuke's journey. All of his rage and his sorrow and his despair were poured into that character that I think he had already written before, His Affair, or before his wife's affair and death in the character of Vanya who he played like steven said before he stopped playing it because it became too emotional but this play is fascinating in and of itself it's this weird narrative that that pulls from a lot of inspiration but it's it's multilingual and every character mm-hmm. in that play almost every character speaks a different language mm-hmm. whether it's japanese korean tagalog which is i think some kind of philippine variation and also they incorporate Korean sign language, which I loved because there's a character who auditions who is mute, not deaf, but mute. And, and she uses K's Yeah, the Mandarin's in there. So that was really fascinating. And there, there's a lot we could say just about that. This film was pretty dense. And I'd, I'd hate when we cast films that are kind of a little more highbrow. I'm always concerned about sounding pretentious because this film does lend itself because it's so slow and so introspective to sounding like it's pretentious when, you know, two dudes are talking about it, two white dudes in a room. But I really do think that this film has a lot to offer, both on a superficial level and on a deeper level. Talking again about the stage play, specifically, what I found most fascinating about this film wasn't even Yusuke's relationship with Misaki, who is his driver, or what becomes his surrogate daughter. But like you mentioned, Steven, his relationship with Koshi, who is that hotshot actor. Mm-hmm. And they have a, f- a fascinating relationship that develops over the course of the movie that begins in a very antagonistic way. Yasuke is very non-confrontational, and he just kind of leaves it. He never really confronts Koshi in the prologue about sleeping with his wife. And he never probably would have met him again or sought him out if Koshi hadn't have pursued him because Koshi feels this this weird existential bond with Yusuke and his material in the same way that he said he did with Odo, his wife, before she passed during their affair. So when Koshi seeks him out, it's never really fully clear, you know, if Koshi knows that Yusuke knows about their affair until this final confrontational, weirdly cathartic uh, conversation they have in the car in the last hour of the film. But Yusuke, a whole a huge chunk of his journey is dealing with this person who is just kind of like relentlessly pursuing him and kind of driving him crazy the
1: whole time. I know yeah, he showed up like three different times, like can we go talk
0: <laughs> yeah, and Koshi, like you said, is a very damaged individual. he's honestly like yeah, he says how he's empty, like his life feels hollow, but he's also so full of this rage, which is indicative of how he he goes after people who he suspects are taking pictures of him because he had this. Scandal. His backstory in the film is yeah. He uh, he with had a an minor. Aff- yeah, he had his illicit affair with a minor, and uh-huh. so his career was essentially yeah obliterated, derailed, and yeah. he he went off and became an independent performer. But he's seeking out Yusuke to find like purpose for his life, to find meaning, and to find I don't know the way he describes Odo and Yusuke's work, whether it's a screenplay or a stage production, is like. There is something incredibly powerful there emotionally that he has never resonated with anything in his entire life in that way. Mm-hmm. And so, I don't know, his journey and then eventually Koshi's like <laughs> fall from grace like by being taken to prison and incarcerated, I can only assume, is strange for Yusuke because Yusuke is just learning to come to terms with what this person means for him. And it's not just his enemy like he he develops this strange bond with Koshi particularly because of that one long conversation they have in the car towards the end that i mentioned there's like almost a kinship you know because they both shared this incredibly deep and meaningful relationship with this woman and then that person is, is taken out of his life right when he felt like he was finally starting to come up with some closure So I think I think that because his whole Yusuke's whole journey is as much as he feels sorrow and despair and you know some degree of pity like self pity, he feels like also in my mind equally proportionate this rage like this this uh, he's angry at his wife for cheating on him because he doesn't understand who she was as a person who was a very different person than him. She, he has to come to terms with how much that she truly did love him. And that's, that's a huge part of the conclusion of his journey. And I think it was Koshi that told him this is that she really did love you and that there was really something special there. But she had this, the expression is swirling darkness inside of her, where she, she had to, in her mind, like have these affairs for whatever reason, whatever label you want to put on it to keep her going. And maybe that was part of her. Dealing with the death of their child, exactly. Their daughter, where she still loved Yusuke, but she had to like find this this other thing to keep her going, which is weird because, like you said in the beginning of the synopsis, they have Yusuke and Odo had this fulfilling sex life, right? And
1: it was a huge part of their bond. Was this? Well, it was like their reconnection because he he had mentioned how after their daughter died when she was four, how they both were just broken and damaged and hollow after that and the only way that they kind of found themselves coming back to each other was through their sex life and then the artistic inspiration that came from their sex life
0: yeah you know the way that their art and their creativity was interwoven there with that sensuality was really fascinating so i think it hurt that's why it hurt him even more when she was sharing that with other men Mm mm-hmm and when he comes to realize that she even told more of those stories like to those other men and Koshi revealed like more of the narrative of that one, part was really sad. Yeah. To yeah. me. I, man, that that's probably my favorite scene in the film and they changed the perspective of the camera too. They shifted a little bit to the side. It was kind of uh uh-huh. askew and then it's like head on yeah. with Koshi and Yusuke like yeah. turning to each other in the car. Yeah. And they're I think they're looking right into the lens, or like pretty close to it. And it's such a fascinating it's just Koshi talking for minutes on end, relaying the experience of this the story that Odo told him that Yusuke never knew the the conclusion of. And for years he had been wondering not just about that, but also like about Odo the day she passed, said that she wanted to talk to him about something. And so he has just carried this weight with him for yeah. years, this unresolved All these emotions. You know, swirling up inside him. And then he gets to work through that because Koshi kind of like, <laughs> in in a strange way, helps him find that catharsis. Yeah, and Koshi wasn't lying. Yeah. He was honest. And despite him being pretty much unhinged, you know, and a dangerous individual, uh, he was genuine. He was authentic. And he was never like, like you said, never lying. <laughs> he was pretty much himself the whole time. Yeah, that that was pretty fascinating for me. But that was just like one one angle, one aspect of the film.
1: Yeah, this film is multi-layered and there's a lot going on. I mean, apart from what we're describing now, there are so many dynamics between all of the characters with our main characters. I mean, like the part where he had them rehearsing over and over again just by reading the story and then he called out koshi and the the other girl that he was implying that they were sleeping together and that's the dynamic that had changed between the characters and therefore they changed their acting without without actually punishing them he was just implying those things the whole time by directing them it was so fascinating there's so much going on there's like there's so many layers to this film like gabe said we could talk about it for hours but yeah it's
0: it's powerful it's it's very moving there's a great scene where in the auditions that korean sign language woman comes up to this isn't even like halfway through the film but she comes up to yusuke during the audition and she's doing her performance and we've seen a lot of sign language in the last few months i guess in the last between coda and last year we had sound of metal there's been a lot of great exposure for sign language but such a powerful performance from her specifically and especially at the end i was hoping they'd do more with it and then the very end when Yusuke has reprised his role as Vanya in his play, and he's like embracing his, you know, he's he's like destiny almost. Yeah, he's come back to find his closure and his, his catharsis, I- his identity. Yeah, she she as the as this performer as his scene partner comes up behind him, and he's she's doing the sign motions um, like with her arms wrapped around him, and she's doing them as if he was doing them, and like she's interacting. I don't know how to describe this because visually it was
1: to me. I I saw it as more as if she's embracing him and she'd be speaking that role, but she's not speaking it. Instead, she's speaking it with her hands, but to the audience who's viewing the play, the hands are in front of his face because she couldn't be speaking those words to him. Does that make sense? So it's more of just this, this embrace of, of comfort I was actually going to bring up that scene. Just this just beautiful. Yeah. Cause yeah. Th- what the character is experiencing in the play in that moment is a feeling of misery and not wanting to go forward. And I think she said something I'll never forget. And I, and I can't, I can't quote it verbatim, but I can paraphrase it. She talks about to this character again, this is, this is a very meta play that's happening in the movie that we're watching. The woman that speaking sign language says to our main character, both the character that he's portraying and our main character, that when we die, we'll be able to tell God that we suffered, life was hard, and just please have grace and mercy on us, and that he will have mercy on us because life was hard. And I thought that that was such a profound idea. Uh, again, very existential but
0: I have the line here. If you want
1: the, yeah, the comfort, the comfort that came from that delivery to the character in the play, but also to the character that we've come to know throughout watching the movie really hit home. And I feel like that summarized the whole movie for me, at
0: least. Yeah. in the context of grief and processing and accepting your experiences. Yeah. the, The theme of the film was like, and I think this was literally one of the lines at some point. It was not giving in to despair. Yeah. And as they said, enduring your sorrow. Mm-hmm. And that's not just a huge thing in Japanese culture, because it is. But I think as a human, like for, <laughs> in terms of human evolution and humanity's history, that's something that we've always had to grapple with and had to had to process. Mm-hmm. I, do, I do have that excerpt here if you want it. Mm-hmm. It's, the, it's the ending of that monologue from that character it's a few lines. It says, "We'll live through the long, long days and through the long nights. We will patiently endure the trials that fate sends our way. Even if we can't rest, we'll continue to work for others, both now and when we have grown old. And when our last hour comes, we'll go quietly. And in the great beyond, we'll say to him that we suffered, that we cried, that life was hard, and God will have pity on us. Then you and I will see that bright" Wonderful dreamlike life before our eyes. We shall rejoice and with tender smiles on our faces, we'll look back on our current sorrow. And then at last, we shall rest. I believe it. I strongly believe it from the bottom of my heart. When that time comes, we shall rest.
1: Yeah, and she's saying all that in sign language. And it actually takes a, a matter of minutes to be said because she's also holding for dramatic pause. But yeah. I love that sentiment. Yeah, so much of what Yusuke wrote for that
0: play is amazing. You know, I was really impressed, and obviously, it's a reflection of you know the writer and the director of this film because <laughs> it's like such a meta thing, like yeah, you said. Yeah, but it it would just it, it's it was great. It was very interesting. Yeah, because it's a very anachronistic play, especially being multilingual. You're like it's like a setting separated from time and space. But I was just gonna say, uh. To, to kind of wrap it up, thinking about a film like this is really interesting, and for me, someone who <laughs> who wants a film to kind of beat them up uh, both emotionally and psychologically, you know I want
1: to be kind of I want to be taken on a journey
0: yeah, challenged by the material, yeah, and kind of be vulnerable so that it can af- it can affect me in a profound way and they they actually had a line in the film. Yusuke, when talking to Koshi, they're having a drink in a bar and Koshi's explaining he's empty and he wants to be not that way anymore. He wants to be imbued with this sense of purpose and life, something more than happiness like or that fleeting sense of it. And and Yasuke talks to him and he's talking about the text that he's written and why it's so powerful and how Koshi can respond to it. He says, mm-hmm. the text is questioning you and you have to open yourself up to it mm-hmm. and respond to it. Mm-hmm. And I, I like that. And that's, that's, uh, it's funny. You asked a, few, a bunch of casts ago, like, what the purpose of what we're doing here is. And that's how I would sum it up if I had to. It's like making yourself open to be able to go on this journey with the character. Mm. And, uh, you know, because everyone's hurting in some way. Yeah whether or not it's because you might have indirectly killed your mother or your wife <laughs> as is the context of our film. Oh my God. But you have to, you have to learn to respond. Yeah. Respond to that. Yeah. So that's
1: why I love this, this movie. I, uh, I agree with you, Gabe, Gabriel,
0: aside from how it was just beautifully shot and you know, and inter- it was the technical proficiency. And there were some great moments of humor. You know this film isn't just all it's not entirely dull. It's it is full of life and it yeah. is life affirming at
1: the end of the day. Yeah there's a lot of humor in the situations that pop up. Similarly to the humor in um Euphoria where it's like something will happen you're like uh is that that's funny i guess it's, and we're laughing cuz it's just like life you know. And life is absurd. It's the best
0: situational comedy is the natural stuff that just happens it's real.
1: Yeah, so uh Ryusuke Hamaguchi has has been on record as saying he's surprised just as much as anybody that there's so much hype for this to for you know to be nominated for best picture. But I'm curious Gabe, do you think this will win best picture?
0: I don't know, man. I feel like I can usually have a pretty good response when you ask me, but when it comes to a film like this, it's really hard to say how people will respond to it. I mean, not just cause it's foreign language, although I think that is a big factor. Like I didn't think parasite would win to be honest. It would be, it would be a shock, but it would be such an incredible thing in my mind. If drive my car just won. Yeah. Or even swept in the way that parasite did. Yeah. Cause parasite was much more of a sensation. I think Drive My Car is is more challenging.
1: Yeah, Parasite was easier to digest, for sure.
0: So, I don't expect it to win, but I would be so delighted if it somehow I could see it taking, you know, at least one of these categories.
1: Yeah, I think it will win an Oscar. I don't know if it will be Best Picture. Um, but this year's weird, and we've I think we've said this a few times, but like I wouldn't be surprised if like 6 out of these 10 won Best Picture. There's only about three or four that I actually would be surprised if it won. but It's going to be (laughs) CODA. Mark my words. But, (laughs) yeah, no, I mean, like, if Dune got it, if West Side Story got it, if Belfast got it, um, if Drive My Car got it, and a few others, I wouldn't be surprised. I'd be like, yeah, that makes sense. Because the way that the voting system works with the Oscars, which we've described in detail on previous podcasts, And the films that are nominated this year, I just feel like it's kind of, it's up there for anybody that, that wins it. That was, you know, however many people voted for it, you know?
0: Yeah. I think best picture is the only one that uses that really strange system of splitting votes or like splitting percentages. Yeah.
1: It's like, if it doesn't take it in its first category, there's a second and a third tier. And then however many people voted for the second tier film could win for best film if There's not enough votes for the first uh, film vote, (laughs) which is insane. But whatever. Anything could happen. That's where we are. Anyway, that's been another episode. The final episode for the Best Picture nominees. The next episode you're going to hear is the worst person in the world. Yeah. Good luck. Another foreign language film. Yeah. And another beautiful
0: case study on dealing with your (laughs) (laughs) s***.
1: It's not a very you're not a dancing guy no i don't you, express myself you're the kind of guy that goes to ralph's at midnight buys a box of 16 cookies and two percent milk and drinks the milk out of the cart and eats the whole thing of cookies
0: that is to say i live my life in a clandestine manner
1: you're living dangerously my friend <laughs> well i think it's the opposite did of you dangerous. finish that box of cookies last night it's not for lack of trying <laughs> is what i'm saying how many about. did you get through? i
0: don't know i started with five and then it came back and i had like three or four more and then I had more this morning. Oh so I've just eaten basically chocolate chip cookies has consumed my stomach. No, the cookie is me. (laughs) I'm like the cookie monster. (laughs)